Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this week, we're going to talk about the dark, seedy underbellies of our favorite fantasies or fantasy worlds or genres or, you know, things we like. We think they're great. There's a dark side. There's a dark, ugly side to it. Rob, I know you were thinking about this uh, potentially because you were, you were playing a game that has some, some good steampunk in it. You're enjoying some some billions. They are billions. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, and not because it's steampunk, uh, really. I think the, you know, it's it's your sort of classic stereotype of steampunk <laughs> where, like, uh, character models are wearing fucking brass goggles for, like, oh. no apparent reason. Yeah. And um, literally your power plant is, like, a giant gear uh, <laughs> that spins around. And, like, on the cover art, there's a silhouette of a giant gear in the city skyline. Like, boy, that, like, it's, you know, it's kind of your very conventional uh, vanilla uh, steampunk world. Uh, But I really have been enjoying it. It's a last stand uh, real-time strategy game. So, basically, like, you... Uh, start in this wilderness with a little like town center uh everything else in the world has been like infected and overrun by zombies uh and you have to uh basically circle the wagons as it were uh and build up defenses and then get prepared to fend off wave after wave while continuing to develop your settlement and uh you know gather new resources um and boy, the circle the wagons thing was a, a telling turn of phrase <laughs> uh, that sort of that sort of foreshadows where we're going with this, uh, which is that there are ways in which its uh, reliance on the zombie trope or the way it deploys it uh, against that steam t- steampunk uh, backdrop have certain overtones of uh, sort of the colonial mindset. Uh, right, and yeah. uh, so Dante uh, Douglas wrote a really good piece on this over at Paste. Uh, they are billions, uh, steampunk colonialism, and the undead. Uh, and he's, you know, basically arguing that to a degree, this is sort of modeling the um, this idea that civilization is this tiny, threatened little island in a untamed wilderness of uh savages uh basically and that is part of how this game like that's that's you know the game is about like surviving the the zombie hordes but like inherent in both the zombie fantasy and also in the way their billions is portraying it is there also an undercurrent of like this is your classic fantasy of uh you know the colonial conqueror basically yeah. right and you know the answer is like i i think there's i think there's a lot to that right like um you ever see this uh God, what was the movie um oh i think it's just called i think it's literally just called zulu uh but it's a Michael Caine movie. Ring any bells? Yeah. Yes, it does. It's one of my dad's favorite movies. I think actually, it's. I mean, it's a it's a great movie in ways. Sure. Uh, like it is very good popcorn entertainment. Except it is also a very idealized uh, vision of the Battle of I think Rourke's Drift, uh, where a small. Uh, British military outpost was uh, besieged by uh, like thousands of Zulu warriors, and with a little you know British pluck and okay, the repeating rifles probably helped quite a bit too. Yeah, uh, managed to hold off a force several times their own size and uh, you know save save the day for for the outpost. Yeah, I'm definitely and, familiar with this movie. Yes. Yeah, and like the movie is ridiculous. Uh, it's anachronistic. Uh, characters are radically uh, changed from their real world uh, anal- analogs. Um, there is very little humanity granted. Like the like the, the the African perspective in that story is is non-existent, right? Yeah. Like they are just nameless masses out to snuff out uh, this little th- this this 
flickering little light of the British Empire. Uh, and the only thing that really sort of grants any sort of common humanity to the to the, the Zulu army as they as they retreat, as a matter of fact, is after they've been defeated, uh, they come back and do like a ceremonial like dance of respect or something or a cheer of respect for the British. Sure. And then they leave. Um, so, you know, obviously, like, you know, the British British colonial military officers uh you know, African troops loved them. They were great. They thought they were they thought really badass and really respected their military ability. Uh, that's the final lesson of that movie, uh, and that's very much what they like. That's kind of what a lot of zombie survival modes are also channeling, right? Yeah. This idea that uh, you're in the you, you know you're holding you're holding the barricades uh, against a sea of humanity. The nice thing about zombies is that you don't have to think about you don't have to think about the humanity of your enemy. Uh, but is it also sort of de- using a structure that is often how we describe how col- uh, colonizers and imperialists describe their describe their relationship to the rest of the world? God, yeah. I uh, some of my not, uh, my worst and biggest sort of offender in this uh, category has a lot to do with uh, much of this, and it has to do with sort of military fetish- fetishization. Um, mm-hmm. And just sort of the the idea that the only way to have any kind of cool badassery in the world, uh, and to especially to conquer space, uh, there's a lot of the colonial in that, of course, yeah. too. Uh, specifically, like thinking about Star Trek, which is, to be fair, uh, very formative for me. Like Star mm-hmm. Trek shows, not even necessarily the original series. I did, I certainly watched that when I was young, but I, I got real into Next Generation, you know, in the '90s. And then, uh, of course, Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Um, and I, I, I find, like, a lot of the stuff that's going on there in terms of ethics and morality very, like, formative and very important. And also, there's a fucking dark current there of colonialism and a dark current of sort of military might. And the idea that, you know, the only good in this universe is a show of force. Uh, you know, the only good is to... Uh, you know, very much uh, did the Theodore Roosevelt thing and like walk, you know, walk softly, but make sure you got mm-hmm. that big fucking stick. Make sure you got those phasers and uh, uh, those photon torpedoes uh, and all that other good stuff so that you can you can show show them who's boss if you don't agree with them, uh, which is it fucked up <laughs> to, to put it mildly to, to really think about it. Um, that's that's not awesome. And uh, so much of the sci fi that I love and just. Oh my God, Chef's Kiss, love it! Like Dark Matter right now. I'm fine. I'm in the the third and final season of Dark Matter. My beautiful, beautiful fucking space trash. And of course, there's a lot of fights, and there's a lot of guns, and there's a lot of shooting people. There's also a lot of fighting with swords and killing people with those. And uh, there's a point where I I do have to to take a moment and wonder like why I like so much violent entertainment and why I like my sci-fi uh, to have all these these sort of like really kind of a uh, primal shows of aggression and power and of course i love it especially if it's if it's women kicking ass and and you know Mm. wearing leather pants and shooting people uh and asserting their own dominance so i like i guess that's your answer right there is that it's like taking back some of this masculine stuff and being masculine in in the traditional way and being a woman and being awesome uh but but there's 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 some point where I have to beg the question of, of why does being awesome mean shooting people in the face all the time? What <laughs> there's a there's an element of uh you know the hire more women guards uh tweet to this right yeah. where it's like you know women can do the exact same stuff that the boys do in the exact same way for the same missions the and same oh my god <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah I think. Yeah, Dark Matter, like, we talked about Dark Matter. I, I bounced off it uh, for for sure. But yeah, there is a lot of um, military fetishism in in those genres. I, I think it's, I guess my, my question is, do you lump, do you lump Star Trek in there with that as well? Because like, at least on its face, Star Trek is trying to be about exploration without colonialism. I don't know if it pulls it off. Right. <laughs> um, like, I guess we should always say the, the like, top line thing, which is, uh, I think it aspired to some really lofty ideals, but was, of course, a fucking American TV show that, you know, yeah. 
the wagon train to the stars, uh, you know, quote kind of <laughs> held true. No, even even in the 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 most thoughtful, I would say, probably representation of the series, Deep Space Nine was it was very thoughtful. I think, or more thoughtful about war and about conflict than than maybe some of the other series in Star Trek. Um, I like, yeah. But it I, I think. Had, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Rob. No, like DS Nine, I think is is a good is. It's interesting because I think the ways in which it succeeds kind of show up uh, the ways in which other Star Trek series maybe drop the ball a little yeah. bit. Like DS Nine picks up a lot of threads from Next Generation uh, for sure, but like I love that so much of DS Nine is about this like lingering legacy of Bajoran oppression, Cardassian occupation, and imperialism. And somehow we all need to move on from that. Uh, or can we, right? Because once the Dominions show up, like the entire thing is thrown off balance again uh, and, and history sort of starts to repeat. Yeah. But I like that DS9 for a lot of its run is a show about wrestling with the unsolvability of the past, yeah. right? Yes, the unsolvability of the past and also the, in some ways, dealing with problems of imperfect information and dealing with problems that uh, maybe don't have a solution even in the present. A lot of that show, especially as it goes on, deals with things like darker elements inside of uh, the Federation mm -hmm. and how far you go in a very like ACLU-ish way of like, how far do you go to protect freedom? Are you impeding upon freedom by protecting freedom, quote unquote, by doing extreme things, by taking away liberties uh, to protect freedom, like in that very, uh, you know, I suppose in certain ways it was like almost like proto uh, George W. Bush uh, rhetoric, even before that was, you know, the case. It was, yeah. it was getting at some of those ideas in, in I think, intelligent and, and really cool ways. Uh, but it also also was a Star Trek show that also had some fucking awesome, cool, badass space battles, right? There, there's the pleasure of the, of the uh, you know, enjoying your cool space battle uh, and wanting to have your cake, too, for feeling like, oh, there's moral weight behind this. But, but yeah. The, um, <laughs> you know, so recently I read um, Roadside Picnic, uh, mm. but the introduction to the version I read, the translation I read, was by Ursula Le Guin, uh, who passed this week. Yes. Uh, but one of the things that really stuck with me in that introduction is that she noted how often the sci-fi we create and consume is about people with power or ideas of ideas of power, right? Like we like we tend to make sci-fi about officers, not enlisted crew, yeah. right? Uh and I think about that a lot in relation to a lot of a lot of military sci-fi where everything is explicitly about these like military hierarchies. Yeah. Um and a lot of it is about this fantasy of uh you can sort of project yourself into the good captain's shoes, right? And like <laughs> see how see how they make the tough calls, make the right calls, uh and everyone respects them. Um but there is there's an authoritarian bent to all of this. Yes. And I think almost across the board, uh maybe DS9 is the exception because I think Cisco is the least captain-like of the bunch and more administer like you know what I mean? Like Cisco plays plays the role. Like C Cisco comes across a guy who's been dealt a tough hand. He got a and, shitty job. Yeah. And he, he literally can't tell anyone because I said so. He can't actually give many orders to the people causing him problems yeah. on DS9, right? Like, he needs to negotiate everything. Like, his crew is not his problem. It's, it's his context. So, like, <laughs> Cisco comes across as a guy, like, basically trying to make an impossible situation hold together, right? Yeah. And so I think he, he sort of stands apart. But, like, Picard is 100% a, uh, basically a Royal Navy captain from the <laughs> 1800s yep. uh, in space. Um, and sometimes and watching, even on the holodeck, dresses up yeah, like oh, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And I was watching uh, BSG the other night. I was watching the uh, Dirty Hands episode. Do you remember that one? The uh, labor unrest in space? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, I do. And I remember it was a good episode. Uh, there's, a, there's a run in season three where they do a lot of like just small stories while they make while they're, while they're marking time until the big uh, trial of the, guys bo- the bottle shows as so to speak the ship in the yeah bottle. yeah yeah and just how people are coping with having been on the run for so long and and what life is like for some of the crew and the people in this fleet but chief Tyrrell ends up like leading a strike in uh in that episode because like working conditions on the industrial ships have become dangerously uh like they, they become wildly unsafe right yeah. uh nothing is being taken down for maintenance uh risk of like accidental maiming is incredibly high uh people are getting sort of trapped in their roles and there's sort of a caste system starting to form within the fleet um and he he tries to say this like four different ways four different times to adama and uh the president and nobody fucking they're like no this isn't the time for it like fuck off like just make sure the fuel keeps flowing and we'll address this later and of course it doesn't get addressed so he leads a strike and what i had forgotten is that adama comes down the way it's resolved adama comes down to the brig and tells tyrell that he's gonna have him shot for mutiny but first he's going to put Tyrell's wife out in the airlock. Oh my fucking god, yes, I remember this. And it does like you I kept waiting for it to be like, ah, it was a bluff. Uh, but it certainly doesn't sound like at no point is it ever like made clear that like Adama wouldn't have done that. And Tyrell doesn't know that either, so it doesn't really matter, right? Like it's still a threat of murderous violence. And right after Tyrell caves and gives in and calls off the strike or uh, gives key information about some of the materials that the strikers were hiding. Adama is like, good. And now I think you needed to have a meeting with the president, didn't you? And it's just sort of like, oh, gee, he, he knew you're right all along. He's on your side. And now he's going make it, to make it so the president listens. But it is this wild... Uh, it's just such a weird scene because the show continues on as before. Yeah. But like watching it now, it's the most like fascist thing that you ever see Adama do in that series. It's <laughs> terrifying. It is a terrifying moment. And so many shows like this kind of lust for that power, yes. right? They like they kind of love the idea of there being someone in charge who has to make the hard calls and occasionally morally compromise themselves for the good of the crew. Uh, and that episode, it was like, oh, wow, this is... The show doesn't even seem to know how poisonous it just made Adama seem. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. It's terrifying to think about what what is it about, like... I, I, I'll speak for myself, but I suppose... In general, like if to make a generalization about Western entertainment, what the hell makes us crave that sort of power concentrated in one individual? Like what makes us what makes us want that? What makes that attractive to us? What makes us like think that's a fucking cool thing? Like it's terrifying and bad. (laughs) It's bad for one person to have that much power. It's bad for one person to do those kinds of things to terrify another human being, to kill other people, to do these things unilaterally it's 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 not great it's not the way human societies uh, successful human societies really work we do better when we work together as a as a you know very 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 top level generalization we we tend to do better when we work together right like why do we want these very rigid hierarchies why do we want this why why is this sexy to us i don't have the answer to that i just like it really freaks me out when i think about it when i sit here and I eat popcorn, and I watch my dumb space garbage, and then I also watch my space garbage that is is not dumb. I don't think Battlestar Galactica is a dumb show. We're not talking no. about the finale. That is a dumb show. But uh, <laughs> the show itself uh, is pretty thoughtful in a lot of ways about society and what makes up society. I uh, constantly think back to that show, and I think back to the, the scene where late, late in the in the series where the court case uh, for Gaius... Uh, is is on and lee is kind of like 
this is all a construct. <laughs> like, if we don't have a rule of law, if we don't have, like, something, if we don't, like, adhere to our roles, he's not the president, and I'm not a pilot, and this isn't anything. Yep. We're just people. And I, I, I can't not think about that, that moment of, of how much we, we construct things, we construct roles for ourselves to make us comfortable, uh, you know, presumably to do things, uh, you know, so efficiently, but, but also like how much of that is like a toxic, weird Freudian parental thing. <laughs> yeah. I like, I don't, and I don't know if it's unique to, Western media. Sure. I, like, I, I just like, can't speak to anything else. But yeah. No, I don't. I, <laughs> I, I don't have the the frame of reference. I'm really curious, uh, actually, uh, how often you see these tropes of like, uh, you know, the the lonely commander. Uh, right. You know, how often is that popping up in, uh, you know, me media outside, you know, Europe and North America? Yeah. Um, I. I think part of it is just for narrative purposes, hierarchies are interesting because they're uh, because they create a lot of interesting friction points and sure. a lot of like interesting power dynamics. Like they're interesting places to tell stories, um, but it is striking how often you how how rarely you see uh, a show that really makes collaboration its focus. Um, like Star Trek has elements of that, but it's usually like, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's Jordy's turn to solve everything in the last five minutes this week. Oh, it's, <laughs> well, uh, it, it's like it, it alternates like every other week data solves everything. And then in the, in his off weeks, uh, somebody else solves it everything. And like, yeah, it rotates. Yeah. Once a season, Barkley, uh, comes in and <laughs> like reminds you he exists and solves something. But beyond that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like. I don't know why that is that is so relentlessly appealing. I mean, beyond there, there is something beyond like the 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 basic allure of authoritarianism and fascism, right? Like getting shit done. That, that yeah. sort of idea, yeah, yeah. Like somebody who can just sweep aside the obstacles between uh, chaotic. Uh, you know, multi multifaceted uh, societies, and just move events to where they need to be uh, for for the for the good of for the greater good, uh, as it were. <laughs> Always for the and greater I, good, <laughs> right? And I think that is an alluring fantasy for anyone because we we can all imagine ways that we would reorder the world. Yeah. Um. And so the trick of a lot of this media is to give us a sense that the person in charge is someone we would agree is kind of virtuous like us. Um, yeah. But it's, it's also, I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> but it's also the trap, right? It's, it's, it's why society keeps falling into like sort of authoritarian, uh, you know, traps or impulses. I, I need uh, to. Yeah, it's. Oh, yeah. No, I that like I just I have no idea. <laughs> it's it's troubling. I I do wonder if it has to do with the fact that we we have a hard time like actually understanding other people. We have a lot of we got a lot of communication issues as a species. But also, I was going to ask if you've seen the first episode of the new season of Black Mirror. No. Okay. It's really it relevant to this, but yeah, I, go, go for it. Like I don't really watch the show that much. Lay okay. Um. I, I do think this particular episode is very much worth watching. Uh, I'll, I'll lay out the basics. I'm not going to, like, you know, go too far into anything. But um, basically, it contests very directly with this question and very much uh, winks and nods at Star Trek, specifically. Uh, without going too far into it, there's a game designer who has made a sort of, like, amazing game, and he has created a mod for himself uh, that is basically Star Trek. They call it Starfleet or some other, not Starfleet, whatever, Star, I don't know. I don't care. Uh, something else. It's basically Star Trek. And he is the authoritarian, moral, and true center of this universe. Everything revolves around him. He is the ultimate power. And what he has done is he's actually trapped the consciousness of other people in his life, in his real life, uh, in this 
horrifying hell of a simulation where everything he says is right. He kills them on a regular basis. They always come back. He turns them into monsters and bugs and fucked up things. He He tortures them. He tortures the shit out of them, but always under the principle of I'm right because I'm the commander because I am captain, whatever the fuck his name is. And it's like a direct blow to the worst parts of Star Trek, the the most violent parts, the parts that are authoritarian, the parts that are like, you look at it and it's fun to watch and then you think about it for five seconds, like we're doing on the podcast basically. And it's like, actually, that was a real dick move and or shows a real lack of concern and empathy for other uh, types of creatures and other types of sentience. It's a... It packs a punch. It packs a hell of a punch. And, it, and it's actually, a, in other ways, a little bit of a departure from the usual Black Mirror stuff because it, it twists in some somewhat unexpected ways and isn't uh, without humor. <laughs> Sometimes Black Mirror is a real... Uh, because it's, it's dealing with some fucked up things, of course, and fucked up ideas. Right. Uh, but this, this particular episode does have humor in it, but it, not when it comes to the sort of the torture of these people, like who are people with feelings and consciousness that he has somehow recreated sort of in this game. It is really um, both really fun to watch uh, as sort of a Star Trek fan and also really hard yeah. to watch because it's, it's saying like, you're such an asshole for, for wanting this fantasy. <laughs> Like and yeah. of course, of course, like as a as a person with empathy and sanity, I would never torture people. I would never, you know, like I I I care about people and their feelings very deeply. I try to show that in my actions. I wouldn't do it like this. I wouldn't, you know, play this game like this. But I think in some way, a lot of us. I won't speak for everybody. I think a lot of us want to be in control uh, of a lot of things and people they want to be in control of people in some degree or or the way people treat you and to some degree and it's a terrifying little leap from that to to what happens on this episode right well here's here's why like i also wonder to a degree like how much of this is driven by uh like capitalist society sure like in like I don't know how it is in more of a like social democracy, uh, like what the dynamics tend to be there. But like, it is striking to me when I look around, uh, you know, my working history, uh, that of my friends, uh, God, and it's even worse in academia. Uh, <laughs> the degree to which your life is at the like huge aspects of your life are at the whim of people who control your employment and control your conditions of employment. This like, I think the idea of like having, having power being the person in charge of of running things is very alluring. Uh, it, It might be even more alluring if you are in a society where for most of the time, for every little thing, uh, you are completely at the mercy of an organization or an individual uh, to look after your needs or or not, uh, as, as as the case uh, so often is. Yeah. Uh, like there is sort of this um. I don't know this the this like sort of inherent uh like you like at times working life in America can feel a little bit like you're trapped in a massive social Darwinism experiment. Huh, yeah. Um, yes. And you are occasionally a rat in the, the Darwinist Skinner box, uh, <laughs> as it were. Um, and I think it becomes really alluring to imagine that situation flipped, right? Not only that, but like to have those, those, uh, those authoritative relationships be about something that like actually matters or like seems at least seems important, right? Like this yeah. idea of, well, imagine what it would be like uh, if instead of working for like a tyrannical, like small retailer, <laughs> small family re- retailer, uh, you were working for somebody who was like saving the universe, right? Or like right. leading uh, a starship home from a distant uh, part of the galaxy. That would at least make submission and obedience uh, and command all a little clearer, yeah. right? And their their significance a little clearer. Uh, but we don't 
we very rarely have that sense of we often we often have like warped hierarchies that surround us. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of wonder if you're in a society where like a lot of needs are met, whether or not those fan those power fantasies are the same. That's a really really good point. I like that. And I, uh, and I suspect. Oh yeah, go ahead. Go on. No, I was going to say, I, su- I suspect you're right. I suspect they would be very different. I suspect maybe something, uh, you know, Maisley, if we or bring our buddy Maslow into this, the hierarchy of needs, yeah. <laughs> suspect if people are further up that chain, maybe we don't fantasize about bloodlust as much, or I don't know. But yeah, sorry, you were about to say something. No, just one last thing I'm thinking about, because uh, I'm thinking about it uh, quite a bit, is... Um, Ages ago, Cory Doctorow wrote something uh, called Cold Equations and Moral Hazard. Hmm. Uh, you ever read this piece? No, I have not. He's talking about, like, basically ethical sci-fi, right? Okay. And, like, how authors are responsible for the situations they create, right? And they can, And if they're not responsible with that, they can create a lot of uh, scenarios where... Uh, something completely like unforgivable and repre- reprehensible happens, but you go along with it because it's been framed in such a way that you just now recognize, like, uh, ah, the, the necessity of the, the hard choice, right? And the example he's uh, he's using is the short story, The Cold Equations, uh, which I think it was I think it was required reading at some point in my in in, in my upbringing, huh. uh, but it's a, it's a story about. A basically an interstellar uh, delivery pilot uh, who discovers that um, there's a stowaway aboard his ship, uh, a little girl who is trying to see her brother on this distant colony. Um, and because she's aboard the ship, he realizes that she's changed the weight of the ship, and therefore he doesn't have enough fuel to get to her uh, get to the colony yeah. where thousands of people need this delivery. And so he spaces her. Um, like he he has to he 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 sends her out the airlock, uh, as it were. Yeah. And basically, like Doctor O's point is that the story, to an extent, and this it is a is a famous and it's a it's a hell of a good read. But the, but the story is framed to make you kind of like regretfully, but like. But firmly support the execution of a little girl, yeah. uh, basically, right? Because, like, well, there's no other way. Uh, and what that erases is all the other context that leads to that moment, right? It, 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 causes, it causes people to focus on the moment of crisis right. and stop thinking about the things that could have prevented the crisis from, in the first place. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, looking at it right now. Uh, and yeah. this is this is good shit. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, but he also cites a story called uh, uh, Farnham's uh, Freehold, uh, which is a oh. uh, which is a story about basically a tyrannical lifeboat captain who, you know, again in the wake of a nuclear catastrophe, has to save everybody uh, because he's the captain and, uh, whenever there's disagreement, he basically threatens to execute people and says there are, you know, it's lifeboat rules and, uh, his role as the captain is the only thing, but standing between them and death. Um, and Dr. O, uh, has a great, has a great line. Uh, the thing about lifeboat rules is that they're awfully good. They're an awfully good deal for lifeboat captains. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, which I think sums up a lot of, my problematic faves in some ways. Yes. Uh, military sci-fi, but also like these fantasies of exploration, conquest. Uh, there are a lot of situations that we simulate and we find fascinating and we tend to not think about uh, the wider context or how sort of these desperate stories of heroism, betrayal, or 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 defeat or disaster, uh, you know how they could have been avoided, how they could have been mitigated, uh, because what we prefer to think about is, generally speaking, the man of action, uh, occasionally the woman of action, yeah, yeah, uh, at the moment of crisis taking charge. Yes. 
Oh, God, yeah. And, like, I, I'm guilty of all of this uh, in a big way. I mean, I, I'm guilty even of fantasizing about... <laughs> I'll admit this, joining the real-life military and going and, and sewing people up uh, at, at wartime. I, I'm guilty of all of this. I'm guilty of wanting to be the woman of action at all mm -hmm. times. You know, like, I I play Ricky Rescue on my ambulance uh, every other week. <laughs> like, I I do these things in my real life. I, I, I am someone who craves agency and craves a feeling of being in control of something and craves the feeling of... Being a woman of action who's cool and rad. Uh, I don't. I don't have like the cool outfit, which sucks. Um, I don't have like the uh, uh, the awesome leather pants and leather vest uh, yet. But I guess we can work on that. Um, <laughs> and it's very like it's very at odds with my politics. Uh, I, I think <laughs> generally, yeah. uh, generally speaking. So I don't I don't know what to do about all this other than to take it into consideration and understand that like I've got some problematic faves right here. Uh <laughs> well, I mean I mean that's the thing is like I look I, I think the, the the where I often am is like I'm okay with ingesting poison provided <laughs> I am aware of that it is poison and can then give myself the antidote, right? Like, I do wonder how often that's self-serving logic, right? Like, how sure. often I'm just like, no, 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 don't worry. Like, I'm watching, um, fuck, man, I, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, what's uh, what's just, like, a, a rancidly, like, oh, no, like, look, yeah, I'm binging Tarantino movies right now, but <laughs> don't worry, like, I, like, I'm... You know, I'm I'm hip to the problems with this, <laughs> but in the meantime, I'm gonna enjoy this stuff and listen to Jimmy of Toluca Lake uh, complain <laughs> about the <laughs> complain uh, at length with a uh, slur laden diatribe about uh, the dead body his friends brought to his house yep. in pulpit. You know what I mean? Like, yep. like I don't know the degree to which I'm just rationalizing. Uh, you know, enjoying things that have a core of, have a core of rottenness to them uh, i hope not I, ho I hope that's not what i'm doing uh but i, I certainly can't guarantee it uh, to myself but but i i do try to remind myself and i'll i'll cite our friend uh uh dia uh yes. dia uh, lachina uh with who's, who's a freelancer with uh with waypoint ages ago she was trying to get me to look at a recipe for um oh god what was it called uh was it just was it just sweet bread like portuguese sweet bread no 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 it was uh god i mean i think it might just be fry bread oh okay or, just, yeah, just sure. fry bread sure uh but anyway uh, so it's it's a traditional. It's like it, it's it, it's a dish, uh, that, you know, that, that basically comes from indigenous culture. Sure, sure. And she was like, "You got it. You got to try this." And and Dan Starkey was telling me the same. And apparently, it's delicious. But the only recipes I could find were like on like Martha Stewart recipes or something like that, right? <laughs> oh, no. And it was like. The framing of it all was like, ah, this is this is a famous uh, traditional Indian dish, yeah. uh, and and just like reading it, like I started to feel like, man, uh, like just reading this, just prepping this meal would make me feel like I'm committing an act of cultural violence and appropriation. Yeah, yeah. And and, and Dia said to me, like, look, the thing you got to do is just accept that every waking minute you are complicit in uh, cultural violence and appropriation. Uh, yeah. And then you enjoy your bread. <laughs> and I'm probably butchering her words a little bit there, but uh, <laughs> I do think like it is both important to keep context in mind. Yes. Uh, it's important to really scrutinize the text and subtext of, of what we enjoy. Um, because I think where it becomes really dangerous is when you uncritically accept it. Yes. I certainly agree with that. 
And uh, I want to add something in there about being good and being good at it. Uh, but <laughs> we live in a fucked up, a fucked up world. Sometimes you got to enjoy your bread, but you should always think about it. Think about your bread. Think about the bread or, or anything else. Think about the thing that you're enjoying. Try to try to consider it, I suppose. Man, I guess we got to move on to letters, but we've got a lot of unfinished business with this dark stuff, with this dark side stuff, yeah. you know. Um, but for the moment, I'll move on. Uh, to letters we have our first one uh from drew uh who is now writing you from seattle because san francisco rent prices can go fuck themselves which already makes me happy thank you drew uh, for writing in drew writes happy new year weekenders against my better judgment i've always had a morbid fascination with games made by quantic dream and david cage even at their worst, I've always found aspects of these games uh, interesting, and even if the execution is often poor, ultimately, I find playing these games a worthwhile experience. But with the recent allegations against Quantic Dream's toxic studio culture, it's hard for me to preserve this point of view. It was pretty easy to reconcile purchasing a David Cage game when his public persona is mostly that of a buffoonish narcissist, as opposed to an enabler and or perpetrator of harassment. Although Cage's games have always had problematic ideas in them, I was still glad they existed because I felt they could still be a positive teaching tool uh, through intelligent criticism. But sadly, it, also, it is also because of these bad ideas that the allegations against Quantic Dreams seem so unsurprising. Maybe we should have seen this coming all along. Thus, my question for you is, are these games even worth criticizing anymore? As critics, do you feel it does more harm than good to give these bad ideas a platform, even if it is to point out their flaws? As a consumer, should I feel bad financially supporting a creator like David Cage, even though I derive enjoyment from piecing together my thoughts on his flawed games? Thanks for all the work you do across the internet, Drew. Who also ends his note with peace, which makes me very happy. <laughs> with, with, the, with the ellipse, I love that. Yep, yep, there's uh, an ellipse. <laughs> yeah, so I think first of all, like we talked a lot about this on um, Waypoint Radio. Yeah. Uh, but this is a little more like where the rubber meets the road, uh, stuff. And professionally speaking, we're practically obligated to like, these are major releases. Like we, we we're probably obligated to, to look at them because like millions of people probably are going to play and encounter this game. Uh, and it's worth asking what they're going to encounter when they do. Yes. Um, for the same reason that, like, if you're a critic, it's also worth, like, there's a lot of shitty, awful people on, like, Twitch and YouTube that you should probably, like, pay attention to uh, because it is important to be aware of conversations that are happening in other places, uh, even if they're not conversations with which we'd want to engage or take part. But that also feels a little bit like a cop out. Like if yeah. it's just if if we don't have our jobs, if we're just two people uh, sitting there, we've always been curious. We've always enjoyed the the silly, dumb, garbage bullshit of a David Cage game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now we have this context of you know possibly uh, seems like they're pretty well sourced reports on his studio culture being incredibly toxic and filled with harassment and uh, racism and uh, boy the microaggressions doesn't even cover it they, they were straight out yeah. racial aggressions uh, described in yeah. the reporting um, and here's this game what do you do with it yeah oh, uh, so I think what we settled on with something like Before the Storm was to write about it, but to always sort of uh, mention uh, very real criticisms of uh, its use of scab labor. Um, that's one approach. Another approach, uh, certainly... God, I I'm trying to... So I'm here, here uh, let's go about it this way. I'm trying to reconcile uh, my feelings about uh, whether or not there's a difference here, and I'm not sure that there is qualitatively, between being fucking disgusted by, say, Louis C.K. and not wanting to watch that show anymore, not wanting to watch no. uh, his his TV show, which I enjoyed a lot. I've seen, like, I think just about every episode of it. I don't want to go near it right now. I, I Like, it's tainted 
right? Even if, yeah. if even if it was a good show with great ideas and complex, uh, some not every episode certainly, as with everything, episode by episode. But like, there were some interesting ideas there. There were some interesting ideas that were handled with nuance. I, I don't want to go near it, right? Like, I don't want to go near a lot of things that have been sort of tainted. Right. By by somebody who's harassed people or, or you know, we have good reason to believe uh, the victims of, of harassment or the survivors of harassment. I, I really enjoyed the disaster artist a couple of weeks ago. And now I don't I don't want to watch it again. I don't want to look at James Franco's stuff right now. Right. There there is an aspect of this that is I am just not having the same feelings about this media now that I kind of know something about the person who made it or the person who was instrumental in making it and, and, you know, sort of front and center in making it. So in terms yeah. of working through personal feelings, uh, I think it's valid to be like, actually fuck this guy, you know, like fuck this guy. And a lot of people were hurt by that. Um, who aren't even, you know, the victim or the survivor of harassment or assault. They're also, you know, the sound person who worked on, that show or, or who worked on this game, you know, yeah. the gaffer is hurt by that. The, you know, everybody who worked on any given thing that is now associated with an asshole and an abuser is tainted by that. Right. That, that has hurt a lot of people in that, in that case, like their shitty actions have hurt a lot of people. Um, and I'm just trying to work through that feeling and like, understand like even where I fall on this basically. Yeah. I think I have this weird thing where I um I often find I don't really know when I've taken a stance. Sure. But I end up <laughs> realizing that somewhere along the line I did. Um like there's never been a moment where I was like, I don't watch I don't want to watch Woody Allen's movies ever again. All right. Um I still don't. I, I still would say like I haven't gone that far. I also have not been able to bring myself to actually watch a Woody Allen movie in about like five years. Sure. Yeah. Uh, maybe longer. Um, and I I think what tends to happen to me is like that feeling of revulsion and ambivalence ends up really subtly like causing me to steer away and give my attention to the million other things that are out there <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, that don't require me to engage with uh, someone who seems like a, a bad actor or a, or a, or an abuser or just a generally harmful individual. Yeah. Um, and I think that's like, this is, this is basically how I stopped smoking as well. Right. I never, <laughs> I never, I, I never quit smoking. I just, stopped <laughs> sure um yeah. like this is this is how i this, this is how i handle uh th this is apparently how i handle the tough choices is um i duck them until i discover that somewhere along the line i made a choice um, <laughs> sure and I'm, and I'm living with it yeah uh yeah i look this is such a personal thing like i have no prescriptive answer to give you um I still am curious about, uh, like, Detroit Become Human. Sure. Almost more so now because, like, okay, so what happens when a studio with that culture tries to tackle issues right. of uh, exploitation and racism? Right. Uh, but, yeah, I have no idea. I I really don't. I it's it's helpful in the, in the in these cases of mass entertainment uh that's uh you know the, the, that's made by large companies uh it's easier at least to know that your your individual choice probably doesn't carry to it's not you know what i mean it's not like you it's not like you are like giving david cage his career right. uh, with your with your one choice or or taking it away uh but yeah i have no idea man yeah I mean, this is this is I I won't go into this too far, but this is coming after a week, uh, a personally difficult week uh, with internet toxicity, um, <laughs> and uh, boy, it it sure is hard to know sometimes where and when uh, to 
draw lines and to understand where you draw lines and to go with your gut and your gut feeling on something um, and, and to listen and to try to be informed about everything that you engage with, right? Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it is difficult in this world to be an informed consumer and it sucks that we have to think of that in those terms as well as consumers as opposed to, you know, somebody who engages with or uh, the, the, the situation of money just adds another layer of complication, I guess, is what I'm trying to say here. Like a consumer of a product as opposed to someone who engages with this thing. It, it, those two can't be disconnected either, which sucks. Um, yeah, but yeah it's, it's a hell of a time. We live in a hell of a time. Um, <laughs> and also... Yeah, I don't... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, like, no, I just... I, 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 do, I, I do think about like... The way our previous conversation ended, trying to be aware of the circumstances and contexts. Um, but then there's a point where you also just want to engage with the work as you read it. Yeah. <laughs> and in so many ways, it seems like understanding those boundaries or navigating them or figuring out how they can properly contextualize each other is incredibly challenging. Yeah. Uh, and it's incredibly subjective. And um, there's, there's never, to, to channel Vinny on, on, on Beastcast, there's never, there's never been a more fraught time uh, to play video games and critique them. <laughs> True. Um, it is, Correct. It, it is a, challenging landscape and people bring a lot of different uh perspectives and uh values to to to, to the to the medium to, to and to any creative endeavor um and it is challenging to know exactly what one's like in this in this particular case what exactly is your relationship supposed to be with this work and and this and this creator right yes a complex uh answer to a complex question or a complex set of questions to Good a complex luck, question <laughs> thank you drew and yes uh, san francisco rent prices uh can certainly go fuck themselves i can i can co-sign that one i can uh tell you that where i where i stand on that one for sure um so i guess to make a hard swing uh, into our weekend projects. Uh, Rob, is there something that you are enjoying lately and you want to share it with the class? Oh, God. You know, I'm going to need to take a knee here for All a right. moment. Uh, I think I'm going to have to ask you to to take take point. That last question, I know. It, it was... It's a lot, and it's a lot to tackle. Uh, I'm enjoying something quite a bit right now. I actually yeah. just... Uh, last night... Uh, paint you the picture a little bit. My girlfriend is off at a uh, ski resort uh, with her soccer team. She is uh, literally, not literally, um, very close to living butterfly soup right now. It's very funny. She's with her uh, queer soccer team playing queer soccer and uh, off on a ski trip. And I am alone with the pets. So it's me and my four little animals. And I decided I wanted to stream something last night. And I was kind of going through a bunch of games I hadn't played yet. And I was like, oh, do I want to play this? Do I want to play this? Do I want to try this? I landed on Thimbleweed Park, the adventure game from, I believe it was just about a year ago. Maybe it was like February uh, of last year where it came out. And it came out uh, as well on the PS4, which is what I played it on uh, last November, I think it came out on the PS4. Uh, when it originally came out, uh, there was a lot of talk about how like it's it's a pretty hardcore point-and-click adventure game made very much for people who have nostalgia for the old really old, you know, the text-based parser, not the, uh, excuse me, not the text-based parser, the parser where text is displayed, uh, mm -hmm. like six or seven verbs are displayed sort of on the bottom left of the screen. And you're using that on items, uh, less, less so the, um, later LucasArts model and more so that's sort of like early, like Maniac Mansion and, and the original, uh, Monkey Island, uh, sort of interface. I believe it, Monkey Island had this interface, I think, like with the six verbs, seven verbs, whatever it is. Uh, not to go too deep on that, uh, but it's it's very much like in the style. It's pixel art and has like a lot of, you know, kind of a goofy cartoonish sense of humor. It's a mystery story. You're playing as these sort of two agents, two federal agents who have to solve this mystery in this podunk town. Uh, this guy showed up dead. 
and uh, you got to solve the mystery with all the wacky denizens of the town. Uh, it's very fun. It's very wacky. Uh, and I am playing it on the casual mode that they uh, introduced later on, maybe for the PlayStation version, I'm not sure, but they, they sort of added it in, uh, which takes some of the complexity out of the puzzles uh, and adds a lot of sort of uh, just general guiding you through things, uh, especially if you're not like an adventure game, hardcore about adventure games, or you honestly are, are here to kind of enjoy interacting with the world, certainly, and moving the story forward. So it's not as if you're not playing the game, but... It kind of takes some of the difficulty out of the game. And I'm not I'm not ashamed to say it. I am fucking loving the casual mode of this. And just, I'm not banging my head against puzzles. I'm still like, it, it feels very well tuned to, oh, this is logical. Let me do this. This makes sense. Okay, and now I'm moving things forward. There's, there's kind of just no frustration to it. Uh, and I just really appreciate that mode a lot. And the game is funny and it's warm and it's charming. There's, uh, I guess if we, if, if I have to say there's some, some mildly problematic elements, there's, there's some language I maybe wouldn't use for a sex worker in one scene that, uh, I did not think was, uh, entirely appropriate or nice. Uh, but, uh, I'm also not going to, uh, that is not enough to dissuade me from enjoying this, this work. I just wanted to put it out there that that is one thing that sucks a little bit. Uh, but generally... Really like this game. It's really fun. I'm having a lot of fun streaming it too. And like, you know, kind of being like, oh, look at this guy. Here's Willie. Yeah. Or, oh, you know, look at this person in a pigeon outfit uh, who has a real problem with the pipes. Like, it's just, it's fun. It's a really enjoyable, uh, very classic style adventure game, but with uh, with this this baby mode. It's like, it's all pleasure. There's no pain. There's no... Uh, you know, racking my brain uh, for hours and trying to, you know, glue items onto one another forever, uh, which I, I don't actually think is that fun. Like, I, I, I like a good puzzle. Don't get me wrong. I like a good adventure game puzzle. Don't get me wrong. But like. But th that became the process yeah. by which we solved a lot of those games is really. Yeah. 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 I don't need the tedium. So I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, the sort of casual mode uh, of Thimbleweed Park. Are you, are you still? Have you recovered? Do you need? Well, you need a minute I, I have. Or? I have recovered. Okay. Um, I think it's going to be something I've talked about before. That's fine. Uh, I think you and I talked about it before the show a couple weeks ago, uh -huh. but I'm just so high on it right now. Just okay. finished the third season of Person of Interest. Oh, Person of Interest. Yes, this yes. show is so fucking good. <laughs> it, it, it like it, it it spooks me a little bit. Yeah. Like because every time I think, okay, I don't know how this show is going. Like. There are moments where the show does seem to become very CBS case of the week procedural. Sure. Um, but that's only in the places where they're sort of between major plot developments and then they sort of unveil what their next sort of overarching structure conflict is going to be. Um, what's different about season three is season three feels like the season where they burned through their entire roadmap for the rest of the series. <laughs> And there's two more seasons left to go. Good. <laughs> um, like, in the third season, they basically trigger a massive mob war uh, that's been sort of brewing since, like, the, like, 10th episode of the series. Uh, they finally, like, take the lid off that. Uh, it gets bloody as hell. It's resolved. A major character is killed. Wow. Uh, and then there's a really, like, sort of wild revenge series uh, that sort of unfolds. Um, and then they take a little bit of a breather. Uh, no, sorry. Then a major, then another major character basically tries to quit and walk away. Oh, and there's a number of episodes that are basically about the entire crew being scattered to the winds and trying to define themselves outside the structure of uh, what they normally do, which is like take numbers from this uh, massive global surveillance AI and basically do good deeds, uh, save people yeah. uh, who are who are in danger or stop them from committing uh, violent crimes. Um, wow. And then in the latter last part of the series, they start going for massive, um, like world changing events within the fiction like they start uh basically pushing toward this idea that this uh evil ai uh that's a rival to the good machine uh that they <laughs> that they've been serving for years uh is about to come online 
and basically take over the world. Oh. Um, and this all might, it is a little bit overwrought for <laughs> sure. Sure. But person of interest handles everything so damn well. Um, in the final couple episodes, uh, Le- Leslie Odom Jr.'s uh, character, uh, who's a privacy terrorist, uh, shows up, and you finally get his backstory about like how basically extraordinary rendition of a loved one uh, basically radicalized him, uh, and now you find him here at the end of the season, up to his hips in blood, oh. um, and he's trying to convince himself. He's trying to he's trying to make all the shit he's done still somehow worth it. You know what I mean? He's <laughs> yes. like he's still trying to make his cause uh actually deliver on on its promise. The guy who plays uh this this the programmer who created the super AI, uh uh Finch, uh Michael Emerson is basically put on trial for creating this like massive surveillance uh like AI and it should be overwrought. It should be hokey. It should be silly. But Michael Emerson's performance as this regretful, uncertain genius um, is just utterly haunting. Nice. Like, it's really cool that this is a show where here in its third season, the characters are still actively struggling about the ethics of what they do and the tools with which they use to do it. Uh, with which they do it. That's rare. <laughs> it is. It is. And like in the third season, it, it, in in the close of the third season, it starts really putting these characters' feet to the fire on what their values actually are, what, what their beliefs actually are. Um, when does the greater good take precedent over individual morality? Yeah. Um, it pushes hard. Uh, on these things and i just kind of adore it oh yeah i oh, i need to watch it it's on the list it's it's on the list as with most things that you starts you getting a little here. queer at the end oh god it gets a little queer amy, at the end amy acker shows up and there's kind of a weird tension between her and oh. uh sarah shahi i think and um yeah like if you like i mean it, that's that's the other thing is uh you've got Amy Acker showing up and be doing classic, doing a classic scary Amy Acker performance. <laughs> um, she she does like murder doll so incredibly well. Yeah, uh, as as a character, uh, where where she like she she wears like the, this sort of like girl next door like skin and mask, and then. Just it takes such glee in ripping it off and like all hell breaking loose. It's so good. Yeah, it's it's, it's so up your alley. She's pretty great in, in Angel. I don't know if you you watched much Angel, but yeah. Yeah, no, I watched I watched it. Uh, she was great in Dollhouse and. Oh God, that's right, Dollhouse. I still I actually never got past. Uh, I don't even remember how much of it I watched. Uh, but, it got pretty good, but also uh, you know. Talking about problematic sure, shows, like sure. as good as it could be, and it could be quite good. Okay. Uh, yeah, like literally, the concept was attractive twenty-somethings <laughs> being taken out of boxes and used. Um, yeah. Created by Joss Whedon. Yeah. <laughs> With snappy dialogue. Yeah. It, yep. 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 That's true. Oh, well. Well, anyway, at least we solved ethical consumption of media. I, I'm glad we did. You know, all in a weekend's work, right? <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was, that was the real weekend project. <laughs> there you go. Here you go, kids. You're welcome. We did it. Um, you know that we've done that. I guess it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. Uh, so, of course, this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. We really do appreciate you listening to us and also uh, would super appreciate it if you would tell your friends, family, 
pets. Uh, tell all your problematic faves about our show. Uh, <laughs> it really does help us out a lot. Uh, word of mouth is how we get into other uh, ears, I suppose. Ears, yeah, ears and brains, uh, hearts and minds, all, all those good things. And if you would leave us a review on iTunes, that also helps us out so, so much. We really appreciate it, and we thank you. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. <laughs> <laughs>